to Critical Friends, the Strange Horizons SFF Criticism Podcast. I'm Aisha Subramanian. And I'm Dan Hartland. In every episode of Critical Friends, we'll be discussing SFF reviewing, what it is, why we do it, how it's going. In this episode, we're joined by Ace Critic and former Strange Horizons Reviews Editor, Abigail Nussbaum, to tackle one of the thorniest issues in criticism, the negative review. What makes for a good, bad review? Why do reviewers feel driven to write them? And are we now in an age where the hatchet job has had its day? We began our discussion with Abigail by trying to define our terms. If we are talking about negative reviews, is there a point at which a good but sort of sceptical or an agnostic review becomes negative? When when do good reviews go bad? I mean, to start with, there's the adage that a novel is a work of fiction with something wrong with it. And I have actually written in the past that the hardest thing to write about is something that's just completely good because you have no access point. It's like a completely smooth surface. Um, so there's there's never been a review that I've written where I haven't found something to criticize because there is always something to criticize. But there there's definitely a balance for me, at least. Uh, there's a point where where the the tone of the review changes, where uh, you know my my goal has n- is not to engage with what the book does right or wrong, but just to say I'm sorry, guys. There's there's nothing worth saving here. Though though honestly, that's that's maybe not true because even in books that that I dislike, I will usually find something worth praising. But the final conclusion is no, no, sorry. That's interesting because so on one level, we can easily spot a negative review. It's a review of a book that the reviewer finds totally irredeemable. But I would suspect that the readers of reviews experience negative reviews across a wider spectrum than that, that they may find a review negative that does exactly what you say, Abigail, which is find some redeemable qualities, but still on balance decide that the book is too fundamentally flawed to recommend. Well, that's that's really more about tone, isn't it? Um, it's it's about the performance of the review hmm. because you can write a negative review that's fairly measured, that is concludes that the book is bad but isn't terribly heated about it, and you can write a negative review that's you know, it's a work in its own right. And what it's doing is this this almost operatic condemnation of of the work in question. It's like it's taking pleasure not in the work, but in telling you how bad the work is. And obviously, uh, readers will perceive that those two uh, actions very differently because they are different and they're trying to achieve different things. And and a lot of that depends on what feelings the work evokes in you. Like, did you just think it was bad or did it make you angry with how bad it was? I would agree that a lot is about performance. Is some is is some reception of negative reviews, or let's not say reception, let's say perception. So when a reader approaches a review and experiences it as negative, some of that is about tone or performance. Is some of it about intent? You just mentioned feeling so angry about a book that you just want to really shake it a good review recommends a novel 
even a, a middling review might say, well, there are things here that might be worth your time. Is the purpose of a negative review to say, do not read this book? Uh, I think yes, to an extent. But also, I think it's about personal anger. Um, I've been sort of thinking about this since you raised the topic with me when you invited me. And I was thinking about this phenomenon of young reviewers who are often very angry, you know, people who are just starting out and they often have these very, uh, um, again, operatic uh, takedowns. Uh, I don't know how common that is anymore these days, but when I was starting out, that was a very common thing to see. And part of that is just, you know, you're new to this, uh, you get a lot of attention by being uh, mad. But some of it is just genuine anger that you spent this time. And a lot of that is that you're young enough and new enough to the field that you don't know how to find the things that are going to work for you. And you read this work that everyone is telling you is great. It's been nominated for awards and it sucks. And you're mad about that. And you want to express that anger. And, and, you know, I definitely write fewer negative reviews than I did when I was starting out. And part of that is just that I'm older and I'm a bit more mellow. Uh, but part of it is I've gotten a lot better at spotting the books I'm not going to like and not reading them in the first place. I think that's really interesting. I was thinking along the same lines in sort of, I won't say preparation, that makes me sound far too professional, um, but, but, but pre-thinking. Um, about this podcast, which is that, I mean, I definitely wrote negative reviews, not even when I was just starting out, to be honest. Um, and I write fewer now, but I think that is because I am choosing better, but also choosing. So I was commissioned a lot. People gave me John C. Wright to read. They, <laughs> oh, God. They gave me so Neil. You know, they get, oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I won't name names. And they gave me... <laughs> They gave me, except for the authors, they gave me Neil Asher to read. Mm. Um, so <laughs> I don't choose those books for myself, um, which sometimes I worry it isn't the right thing to do. Is a reviewer's sort of negative side important to their personality as a reviewer? Is it is it just as useful for their readers to understand what they hate as what they like? Is choosing good books so that you write nice reviews necessarily a good thing I, I i wonder if this is also partly about venue and what kind of relationship a reviewer has with their readers mm. because if i'm writing for say a newspaper where it's not a venue where i where i publish a lot the readers of those reviews aren't necessarily going to know that there's a body of work um by me that they can look at then that's one thing um Whereas if I'm writing for somewhere like Strange Horizons, there's that sense that if if I'm going to hate this thing, and if I know I'm going to hate this thing, I'm going to hate it for reasons that I've already articulated before. And why repeat myself and why just keep saying this continues to be bad? No, absolutely. Um, there, there, there does come a point where... Uh, 
you know, you're in definition of madness territory. And and I thought about this a lot, not so much in, in book reviews, but when I was writing on about TV, about shows like Battlestar Galactica or Game of Thrones. And these were shows that made me very angry. And, you know, at some point, you know, especially with Game of Thrones, I had to say to myself, you know what, you knew, you knew what was going on here. You have chosen to continue to watch this show. So whose fault is it here? Uh, so, and that has to be reflected in the review. I mean, if you keep saying that something is bad, but you keep writing about it, whose fault, you know, is it here? So, yeah, I think that that's definitely uh, a part of it uh, in in what you choose. And and if you're you're constantly choosing things that are going to make you angry, that not only feels like a waste of your time, that is maybe a waste of the reader's time. And honestly, it's just it is a lot more fun to write about something good and have people come back to you and say, I read this because you recommended it and it's so great. That is just so much more satisfying. Or even write about something that you feel ambivalent about, but that ambivalence is this text specific and you've got to tease that out. Yeah, something that's complicated and and thought provoking, especially if that can trigger a conversation, which unfortunately doesn't happen so much anymore uh, with, you know, the death of blogs and whatnot. But um, that was that was always something that I really enjoyed that you write about something and someone responds to your post and you end up having this long conversation. And that is, that's just a lot more fun. So I, I wonder, cause we're talking about intent and picking books that you know, you're going to like, because that's just, you're, you're picking books for yourself. You're reviewing books that you just happen to have read maybe on a blog um, or because you have a relationship with a particular publication where you can pitch a particular book. What happens when you think you're going to like a book? You 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 pick it thinking this will be great. I will write a good review of this book. And then you don't like it. Mm-hmm. And um I'm thinking here of um Wesley Osmond's recent review of Lessons and Lattes which which literally he he picked up because so many people have been saying good things. It's now been shortlisted for a Nebula and it's not good. So what responsibility do you have then, if any, to to write a, a negative review of a book that a lot of other people have been recommending? Well, to be honest, I don't, I've, I've actually been fairly fortunate uh, in that I have definitely uh, chosen books for review. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about for Strange Horizons, not just for the not the blog, but something that I've committed to review. Uh and I've definitely chosen books where I thought I was going to love this and it ended up just being fine. Um, but for the most part, th- there has not been an incident where I thought I was going to like this and I hated it. There's been there's been one incident um, incident. I'm yeah, I was going to say I love, yeah. <laughs> one case uh, where I accepted a book for review that I was really looking forward to. And I just had no way of dealing with it at all. It's not, not even that I thought it was bad. It just did not work for me on any level. And I came back to Maureen and I told her, I'm sorry, I can't write about this because, and again, if I thought the book was bad, I would have written a bad review, but I just did not have an access point to it. So I told her this is not for me to write about. And, you know, she just uh, said, yeah, sure. That sometimes happens and found someone else. Um, 
But for the most part, I've been I've been fortunate. I mean, there there've definitely been reviews that uh, the Strange Horizons commissioned me that uh, have ended up negative, and you know that happens, and that's you know you have to say what uh, what you think, but you also have to recognize that sometimes you're just not the right reviewer. This gets onto a really interesting set of questions here about the presumption of a reviewer, really, that their opinion matters. So if they don't like a particular book, there is the easy uh, retort from fans of the book. Uh, and as we've discussed, there are books that lots of people are recommending that a particular reviewer won't like. The retort is easy. Oh, well, you're just not the right reader for the book. Mm-hmm. Is there is there a way to respond to that? I, I have. This is something I've been thinking about a lot, actually, in the last month. Um, and the retort is those are two different things. The the reaction of this is a bad book and this book is not for me are different reactions. And and part of being a good reviewer is knowing how to distinguish between them. Um, and like a long time ago, this was when Neil was still the reviews editor for Strange Horizons. He assigned a book to me. Uh, it was called, uh, I think, The Strange Tales of the Brothers Grossbart. And I read this book. and I, I remember that one. Yeah, I genuinely disliked it. I did not enjoy reading it at all. And I wrote a review that was, you know, total pan. And uh, what I usually do is I write the first draft and I put it aside. But as soon as I finished it, I told myself this is this is wrong. I've done the wrong thing here. This book is not bad. I just didn't like it. And those are two different things. And I went back and I just wrote a completely different review where what I was saying was this book does what it was trying to do extremely well. And I do not like what it was trying to do. But maybe you will like it. And I think like I think at some point the author even uh, uh, we were speaking on something else and you said, I really liked that review. But but. It is part of the essence of being a good reviewer to recognize those two reactions. And sometimes uh, the response is to uh, write a total pan. And sometimes it's to write a review that says this is a book that succeeds, but it's not for me. And sometimes the reaction is just, yeah, I'm not going to write about this. I'm not the person who should be writing about it. But but these are different things. And this tyranny of niceness thing of, you know, if you don't like this book, then I guess it just wasn't for you. That is that is confusing different reactions, I think, in the name of suppressing criticism, because that is simply not always the case. So I entirely agree with that. I keep leaving space in case Aisha wants to to come in, just so people don't think that I'm just just shocked that you've just said something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just nodding along. Reviewers need to have the space to call out bad books because sometimes it isn't just an aesthetic judgment. Sometimes it is. So sometimes a book will just be, you know, it might make us cross, but it's just clumsy or poorly wrought. But sometimes it will be actively malicious, either in t- intent or more commonly affect and there is a real danger of closing the spaces in which reviewers are able to say those sorts of thing for fear of the retort oh well it just wasn't for 
you drawing from what abigail said about okay sometimes this book is bad and sometimes this book is doing what it wants to do very well but that is not for me there's also the the response that is this book is very good at what it wants to do and i fundamentally disagree on a moral level with that project exactly which um which i think is where this then comes in where we're like okay so what is this aesthetic project what do i feel about that 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 superstructure and then how how do i feel about this book in the larger context of that and i think that if we only um speaking as a reviews editor if we only place books with people who already agree with the project of the book then we're losing something really important from a critical perspective. Yeah, I mean, just in general, I think it's sometimes useful to have someone come in and say, what is the value of this project? Um, not even not even from, from, you know, trying to tear it down, but simply like, you know, kicking at the foundations and, and trying to, to figure them out. Uh, I think that that can be useful uh for if not for the specific work then for the field as a whole to just you know take a step back and say what what's going on here i i honestly think that a lot of of times when um when you have a work that you're saying yes it does what it's it's uh it's trying to do but what i think it's trying to do is is not worth doing a lot of times i find that those works fail on their own terms to go back to wesley's uh, review of, of legends and lattes one of the points that he made in this review is that this book that is supposedly so uh uh benevolent and kind and wholesome involves the heroine uh, making common cause with a mobster who <laughs> is uh, carrying out a protection scam against everyone else in the city. Like, that's not wholesome. Yeah, Wesley makes a really great point that the book la lacks all, I think he uses the phrase, literary turbulence. And this is an attempt, of course, to make a very, quote unquote, cozy book. But the problem is that by removing all friction from the book, you make some category errors morally. And one of the category errors is this gangster that uh, smashes up people's businesses if they don't pay money. It's fine if you just give us some cinnamon buns. That's good. And and there is a there is a <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure you can let that go. <laughs> yeah. So so I think like. Sure, there's there's work that works completely on its own terms, but is, you know, morally abhorrent. Like, you know, like everyone will tell you that Lenny Riefenstahl was a great film director. Uh, but I think there's a lot more work that tells you one thing about itself. And when you look at it, it's it's actually doing something very different. And I think it's especially true and especially worth pointing out in genres that are so inherently about comfort which is i think and again something that wesley talks about a lot in that review the idea of coziness and co and what where that coziness is coming from and what we're having to smooth over or ignore to to access it um and i think that's true of 
well, a lot of subgenres of the field that we all read in. I, I'm immediately starting to think now of Clark Cena's piece recently for um, the criticism special that Strange Horizons did earlier in the year on the Becky Chambers books, uh, where he does exactly this, reads the entire series and looks at the things that it is smoothing over or the things that it is doing or the centers of gravity that it's choosing uh, and, and critically uh, reads these. And it was struck me as a really important thing to do, particularly for a series that has been otherwise so lauded and has such a, a large following. But what's interesting is Clark was under no illusions when he started that piece. He knew that he was setting out to, to if you like, do battle with that constituency, that they, they wouldn't like to read or hear these things about this series and sometimes a reviewer doesn't just stumble on a book and accidentally have an opinion that then they <laughs> alas feel the need to expand upon at great length sometimes they're setting out to have that fight i remember Abigail, you mentioned maureen maureen's last piece for us um the critic and the clue about uh trickle walker by alan garner she just says, yeah, this isn't going to be popular amongst the the, the, the Ghana community. I, I'm, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do it anyway. I just wonder what we think about that approach to negative reviewers, i.e. negative reviews, sorry, i.e. the <laughs> I know this is going to be negative and I don't care approach. Well, I kind of wonder how how possible it is to provoke on that level anymore. Because the 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 environment is so different from what it was. I mean, it used to be that you'd post something and it would spread like wildfire, and you know there would be so much conversation and and you know argument, and and it it just it doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, the things that will go viral or are just completely different. No one's reading a 2000 word review to get mad about it. You know, if you, if you really want to provoke people, you have to do it with a tweet or something or a TikTok. Sure. There's, there's definitely uh, situations where you say to yourself, yes, I'm going in, but you know, what are you going into anymore? I mean, maybe people are not going to like what you write, but uh, the opportunities for, for them to get big mad are just not there anymore. I think that's true, at, certainly in in the genre or at a certain readership level. But I'm, I'm thinking as well about reviewing perhaps more generally. I don't know whether any of you have seen that A.O. Scott, the film critic for The New York Times, uh, stepped down recently. And one of the reasons given for this was fandom was the impossibility of critiquing specifically superhero films which feels a too easy target um when the community around that text let's call it a text is so resistant to that critique so yes at a certain level no one's going to read your stuff and it doesn't matter so much but at a kind of if you like either at the top level or just theoretically the general perception of criticism, uh, whether or not you actually, as an individual reviewer who's written a particular review, feel the blowback from your review. Has there been that shift? Do you think that there has genuinely been that shift away from criticism as a, as a, as a cultural activity? Or is it just that 
people have never really liked critics, but that it's easier for them to make that known now? Well, I think really depends on what where you're looking at and what field you're looking at, because um, film criticism in a venue like The New York Times, and especially when the critic in question is, is so accessible, uh, they're on Twitter, they're interacting with people on Twitter. Um, that's just a different world. Uh, and yeah, if you critique superhero movies or if you like this company's superhero movies but don't like this company's superhero movies, that's going to get you a lot of attention from people who, you know, who the hell wants to talk to them. Um, but uh, that's 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 one world. And um, it's not the world that most of us uh, move in. Whereas if you look at, at fandom, I definitely feel like the shifts in it are, are very different. And the position of the critic is, is very degraded within genre fandom, that the conversation is much more dominated by authors and by fans. Like you said, it's it's not so much that uh, you get people mad at you is that people aren't really listening. I'm thinking about someone like Stitch, who has written for Strange Horizons, but also writes for places like Teen Vogue, where obviously there's a much wider audience. And the kind of blowback that they get for writing about media franchises that have these massive fandoms, um, particularly Star Wars in their case. Um, so I think that there is some overlap because obviously critics do work in multiple different venues as well. Between the critic who can write the, the long, thoughtful piece that no one will read enough to get angry about and the critic who writes the long, thoughtful piece that then has 2,000 people um, trying to get them fired. Yeah, I mean, that, that overlap obviously exists. Um, and But again, I think it's, it's relevant that um, we're talking about media criticism here. Yeah. Then when we're specifically talking about one of the biggest franchises in the world. Uh, and that's what gets people mad. Um, whereas, you know, if you write about a book, even a very popular book, I, I just don't think that there are that many people who care unless you've, you know, you've written something incredibly stupid and offensive and somehow people uh, catch, uh, catch on to that, which, you know, does happen. But if you if you've just written a negative review, I, my experience is that most of the time not much happens. Do you think, Abigail, that reviewers are aware of this? Because speaking as a as I just said, as a, we're sort of wearing several hats in this conversation, and one of them is as reviews editors who commission reviews like all the time. <laughs> and I I've noticed. I don't know whether you have. I I've I've noticed over the last few years in particular a more pronounced nervousness about writing a negative review. A reviewer will still do it, but they will email you first and say, this is going to be really negative, or they will say, do you think that's okay? Um, and on one level, this is really good because I think perhaps even more than a positive review, a negative review needs to be copper bottomed. It needs to be, you need to be certain that the reviewer has done their work. Um, if they're going to be that negative. So that ele extra element of being careful, I think, is, is, is really good and to be encouraged. But we are all part of the same culture. So I hear what you're 
saying, Abigail, about, oh, well, you know, it's only if you're an extremely visible critic talking about an extremely visible franchise that you'll really get the blowback. And I think that's true. But we all live in the culture where we see that blowback happening. And that may have a, a, a chilling effect on reviewers and reviews that won't get, practically speaking, get that blowback because we're all seeing it. We're, we're seeing the cultural move away from critics, as you say, in action, even if we even if in reality we're not going to be victims of of any pile on. We still know that the culture isn't that welcoming towards that kind of opinion or that kind of expression of that kind of opinion. I think that's definitely there. Uh, I think that I, I've definitely had that reaction myself, even though there was no reasonable expectation of it happening. Um, but I also think that there's something else going on, that there is perhaps a growing mentality that there's something wrong with uh, writing a negative review, that it's being unkind, that it's uh, hurtful uh, to the author. And I think that maybe the, the self-censorship comes from that, that you're not trying uh, to avoid, you know, being, you know, dogpiled so much as you're trying to, you know, think of yourself, I'm a good person, I'm not mean, uh, and therefore I shouldn't uh, write a negative review. Uh, and, and to be clear, I don't think that that's 100% a, a bad thing. Um, thinking about the fact that uh, there's a real person who has uh, written this work is not a bad thing. I mean, it's never bad to be kind. But at the same time, you also have to remember that the author is not your audience, that you're not writing for them. Um, the, the time for someone to critique their, uh, their work in a private setting has passed. Uh, and you're writing for readers. Uh, you're writing for people who want to know if this work is for them. And you're writing for the field as a whole. Uh, and I, I definitely think that we kind of need to push back against the mentality that there is something wrong or unkind about writing a negative review. While still acknowledging that a negative review can be wrong or unkind. sense as well of and, and this is obviously partly the internet and we can see authors having negative reactions to things we can you can see authors um you know posting their goodreads reviews and being um sometimes with the names of the people um, um edited out sometimes not and talking about how sad it made them feel um and so there's both on the one hand yes there's that sense that we as critics and reviewers are aware of that person to a much greater degree than we would have been. But there's also that kind of performance of of sadness and vulnerability that becomes then very easily weaponizable against the critic. I'm thinking about the Kate Clanchy case, mm. where, again, there was no reasonable expectation on the part of that reviewer on Goodreads that this was going to blow up the way it did. That was entirely the doing of the author. Um, but it, it very much went through that cycle of, oh, this poor, sad, vulnerable person um, facing this completely unjustified criticism. Oh, wait, the criticism was justified. Well, anyway, um, 
<laughs> and it and it just sort of snowballed. Yeah, and and I think that what's sort of in the background, I mean, it, it's rarely spoken, but in the background is this presumption of power, of like you say, the the author is is a poor, vulnerable uh, um, little guy, and uh, the mean reviewer. Um, and, you know, at some point you get into this whole punching up, punching down conversation. <clears throat> and it, it just it just makes me incredibly angry because. I mean, no one here has any power. OK, like like, you know, we're, we're a bunch of, of people who are uh, uh, writing reviews as, as a hobby and uh, a bunch of people who are writing books. Uh, uh, while they care, uh, keep a day job, okay? No one here has, has cultural power. Um, though obviously in the, in the Kate Clanchy case, she was able to uh, weaponize tremendous institutional power um, and, and get media and, and more famous figures <clears throat> in the literary sphere on her side. So, you know, I say no one here has any power. There are obviously exceptions. But I think in general, there's a tendency to phrase this conversation as if it's it's you know that you know the strong against the weak and who you think is the strong and who you think is the weak depends entirely on which party you are whereas i think it's worth uh, uh remembering that you know there's no power here there's you know people who are speaking their mind and who are you know putting parts of themselves out into the world and we should try to maintain decorum and civility about this. But at the end of the day, this is not a fight. And if you start treating it as a fight, then you've already done something not on. I wonder if we need to talk about positionality. Because I, I completely agree with you, Abigail, that, that the idea that uh, there are, you know, significant power relationships between a lot of the players in 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 this arena feels untrue. Um, I, I mentioned my negative review of, of Neil Asher earlier in the podcast. Asher did respond and did suggest that I simply had access to grind, which was why I didn't like his his book, which was fine. But the idea that Neil Asher was in any way, shape or form threatened by Dan Hartland's agenda felt to me, again, untrue. But there may be situations, may there not, where the positionality of the reviewer does have some effect on how their opinion on a particular book or a particular author can be read. Let me use myself as a as an example, because then I'm not abusing anyone but myself. I'm a I'm a, a straight white Western guy, and I choose to pan a debut novel by a writer from the global south. Is there not some power relationship there, however less pronounced than it might be? Do we not need to think about which reviewers? get to pan which books? Well, I think absolutely. Um, though I, I tend to think of it less in the sense of, you know, my my situation, my privilege gives me uh, power. Not that I'm saying that's not true, it does. But I think that the issue is more of whether I'm able to engage with the work in a way that's useful. Um, or whether, you know, I'm just coming to it from a place where I can't understand it or understand where it's coming from. 
I think that that's that's a, a more important way of looking at that question. Because yes, there there is the issue of, of course, uh, there are more anglophone uh, venues for SFF criticism, and um, people from the global north will have an easier time getting published in those venues. Uh, you have to to work. You both know this. You have to work to find the critics who are who are not from your own mainstream. So there is there is absolutely an element of that. But I think. The more important question is, are you finding the person who can engage with the work uh, where it's at and who can, you know, open it up to readers in in a way that helps them engage with the work as as opposed to a critic who is either alienated by it or is unable to grasp? you know, what it's trying to do. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that as editors, I would like to think that Aisha and I spend quite a bit of time thinking about those questions. Of course, a curated venue like Strange Horizons or any other magazine that carries reviews is one thing. And then we come back to blogs, of course, where, you know, people can choose to give their unsolicited opinions at, at any point. But of course, readers can also choose not to read them. So I think that the responsibility of the curated venues is quite quite high here. I think, yeah, with, with curated venues, there's that sense as well of ultimately the responsibility is with us, right? If we've, if, if we've um, paired together a review with someone who is clearly not going to have um, useful ways to access that book or who's going to that book because they just don't understand what it's doing that's on us um if they if their criticisms aren't adequately um backed up by any sort of evidence then that's also on us whereas yeah i think i think it's it's less that there is a power difference and more that there are multiple power differences there are multiple axes of power at play. Um, if you were to write a critical review of an author from the global south, um, yes, there are some ways in which um, you'd be taken more seriously than another critic talking about what the book was doing well. But obviously, this is also a book that's being published that has a marketing campaign behind it, that has a publisher's weight behind it. Well, I know that uh, writing on my own blog, I've, I've become more aware of the way that, you know, some books are coming to me from a, a very different world, from a very different uh, frame of reference. And that as a reviewer, I need to take that into consideration when I'm writing. And you know what? That's not just for, for negative reviews. Uh, I remember I wrote about Han Kang's Human Acts, which is about the uh, Guangzhou massacre, I think. I think Guangzhou is the, the correct uh, name. And this is an incredibly famous incident in South Korea's history uh, that I was completely unaware of before I started reading the book, because I know nothing about South Korea. And, you know, it really changed how I uh, reacted to the book and how I, I ended up reviewing it. But at the same time, I was cognizant when I'm writing this absolute rave because it's a, a wonderful book uh, that I'm also coming at it from the perspective of an idiot who didn't know about this event. 
so that that matters. And I was thinking about it more recently when I was uh, writing about uh, the seven moons of Mali Almeida, which I also think is a brilliant novel. Uh, but again, I know nothing about Sri Lanka. And and not only do is that the case, but the book has sort of been written with that in mind because there's like inserts in the book that are explaining it to stupid Westerners who know nothing about the country's history and can't tell the different factions apart. So that's definitely something that you have to be aware of whenever you're writing positively or negatively about a work that's coming from completely outside your frame of reference. But it also affects uh, when you write negatively. And, you know, I have I've had the experience where I was reading a book that was about uh, the global South experience, about colonialism, about racism. And, you know, in some cases it doesn't work for me. And I think to myself, how much of this is, you know, this book just isn't working and how much of it is my inability to bridge the gap? And I think, okay, on some level, I'm never going to be able to fully answer that question. And some level that's going to be something that someone else is going to have to tell me. But you have to at least engage with the question. You have to, it has to be part of your your reviewing process. Yeah, I think this comes back to something that we were saying, uh, particularly you, Abigail, was saying at the start of the uh, conversation, which is that the reviewer needs to be open to the idea that the book isn't for them. And that, in fact, that can be one of the book's positives, that the book has been designed for a different audience. And as long as the reviewer has the humility or frame of reference to acknowledge that, a book that is not for them can actually be a great book. I think as well, though, that, and again, this is something I've done as a reviewer and had to scrap the work, or this is something that I've seen reviewers do as an editor and have often had to scrap the work. Um, it, there's also the difficulty of then making the entire review about what you didn't know. <laughs> so, if you are reviewing the Seven Moons of Mali Almeida and inst- and you fixate on how much you didn't know about Sri Lanka, or you spend the entire review explaining the history of the country to your reviewer, like guys, did you know this happened? Um, <laughs> it, you're not going to end up with a useful review, and at worst, you're going to end up with just a sort of navel gazing. I know I know nothing. I'm please pl- please come and condemn me for how little I know. Um and at best you're going to end up with a useful history of a country that could possibly be done by someone else. <laughs> um I'm thinking about something like um Shiv Ramadas's um and now his lordship is laughing, which is a really good short story that we published. And where a lot of the reviews that it got were basically, guys, did you know about the Bengal famine? Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yes, actually. <laughs> there is an element to which the self-reflexive reviewer thing is just as much of a performance as the angry negative reviewer thing. And is a sort of, you're getting your defences in early. And it, it does misshape the review. I, I, I've had a experience of this. So I, I, I wrote a rave review for Strange Horizons of Freshwater by Kweke Amazi, which is awesome book. But I was also conscious that it was doing things that, you know, weren't for me is the wrong phrase because they were totally for me because I loved what it was doing. But it was it was written from a very particular perspective. And yeah, I didn't dwell on this, but I mentioned it. And I think that that is 
you're right, I should to say that there does need to be a balance here between feeling that, oh, I'm going to write a negative review, so I need to explain, or oh, I, if I just say that I don't have the right to have an opinion, no one will hurt me. Again, it has to work from a position of, oh, here, let me explain to you and give you more background about this very interesting work, not, you know, as, as Dan said, I know nothing, please don't hurt me. Because if if you know nothing, then why are you writing? <laughs> I mean, there is there there is a degree of arrogance in being a reviewer, and the the solution to that isn't to run away from that; it's to Mm. own it and to say, yes, I am claiming a position of of certain authority here, and I'm going to try to earn that. And yes, humility is one way of trying to earn it, but also you can take it too far. And at some point you have to, to say, I have I have chosen to speak. I have chosen to, to uh, make myself heard. And therefore, I'm going to try to earn that position to to make your make this worth your time. And ultimately, anything that you add to your review has to be in service of discussing the book. Is this a good book? What is this doing? How well does it work? If you need to add information and context so that your reader can see how the book works, that's completely justifiable. If you're just giving context for, I didn't know this, this is interesting, or um, I didn't know this and this is my disclaimer for any further criticisms that you might have, then that isn't in service to the discussion of the book. I think that there can be reviews that are very personal and that bring the reviewer into the work and that are useful, but you know, they have to actually bring yourself into the work. You have to actually expose yourself, whereas what you're describing is, is defending yourself. It's like a defensive yeah. crouch. whether we should just briefly because we're we're three diligent conscientious reviewers so we like to assume that all reviewers are diligent and conscientious but of course they're not um and and there it, it is true that there are negative reviews or negative writing about books which are in bad faith which give good and diligent and careful negative reviews a, a bad name um and i just wonder whether we need to mention that or acknowledge that. I'm thinking it, it wasn't a review, but there was critical content. I'm thinking of the recent Wired profile of Brandon Sanderson, for example, which, which <laughs> right, because he salts his ramen and that's bad. And because the, the, the community was up in arms about this critical piece, about a writer who probably deserves some some sort of informed criticism, but maybe this wasn't that piece. I think I thought that the most useful commentary I saw about that that piece was saying, look, there is so much that you can say that is legitimately negative about this guy, and you you fixated on all of the the, the most pointless uh, stuff. I mean, you're basically saying this guy's bad because he's cringe. Who cares? <laughs> um, and that that you know. I think that that's that's true. I think it is worth calling out reviews that don't engage with the work on its own terms. And I I see that a lot 
when uh, mainstream critics write about genre, write about science fiction, and you can just tell that they haven't got the language for it, that they haven't um, got the terms. And, and you want you want to say to them, this is not your lane. You don't know what you're doing here. And and by all means, uh, trash this work if you're able to engage with it and you can't and you find flaws in it. But if you're not able to engage with it, then, you know, find someone who can. Having said that, I I mean, I read the piece. I didn't have strong feelings about it. But I think the thing that I found very interesting about that review that ties into this discussion was the extent to which it was read as a criticism of the community. Well, I definitely think it's a move that uh, some authors and some fans will make of like collapsing the difference between uh, the the work and not just the work in the author, but the work and the fans. You know, this person didn't like X. That must mean he's attacking all the people who do like X. Sometimes that's true. Okay, sometimes people do that, but most of the time they don't. And and if you're you're trying to to get your fans riled up by doing that, that's that's kind of you know. It's not nice. No one ever complains about reviews when they're good. No one ever says, well, that's just your opinion, man, when you wrote a rave. Like, you know, and if that's, you know, legitimately their stance, then it should be. Like, if I write, well, this is the best book ever, someone should come back to me and say, well, that's just your opinion. But they never do. Okay, and no one ever says the reviewer is is arrogating power to himself and he thinks he knows better than the rest of us and and who let her uh, be the arbiter of good and evil when you write something good. It's only ever when you write negative reviews that you get those responses and I feel like that's telling. Taking notes to go and troll Abigail's blog. I think everyone's gonna love this episode. <laughs> Once again, I feel like uh, you're anticipating a, a um, <laughs> outrage that will probably not uh, materialize. Suggesting that not everyone listens to this. I would never suggest that. I would never <laughs> suggest that. Such it's a good the answer. Most popular podcast ever. <laughs> you can come again. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Abigail. Thank you. Thanks, Abigail. <laughs> to Critical Friends, the Strange Horizons SFF Criticism Podcast. Our theme music is Dial Up by Lost Cosmonauts. You can hear more of their music at grandvalise.bandcamp.com. See you next time. <laughs>